0: But if you're following along, we're in uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, uh, page 7, if you're following along in the uh, note outline. Chapter 3, which we pretty much dealt with the the first section 1 through 13 last week, um, brings in, uh, Solomon brings in God. He, in the first uh, two chapters, as you might remember, he's testing the thesis that if, the the way I put it, if the, if the box is closed, if it's a closed box universe, if under the sun is the only reality we have, there's nothing beyond the physical world, then for Solomon, he concludes all is vanity. N- nothing makes sense. But now in chapter 3, which we covered last week, the first part of that, he brings God into the equation, into the picture. And uh, those of you who were here last week, remember we focused on two key words, And, and neither word is in these verses, but yet that's the theme of these verses, that God is sovereign and God's providence is real. God is sovereign, it means that God is in control, uh, that God not only reigns in heaven, he rules. And providence is a word that refers to God's involvement in his world. God is not an absentee landlord. God is not the master clockwork clockmaker who makes a perfect clock, winds it up, and then leaves. God is involved. And in part, as Solomon is, is discussing this, part of the evidence that he suggests for God and God's providence is the cycle of life the the, the the time that God has ordained for everything and that it's, it's basically poetry verses 2 through 8 which uh, the doors is that what what did you do who, who, did, who did this to song was it the doors no The Doors, okay. Because I had to ask last week who who recorded this in the 70s? Birds. Birds. Huh?
1: Birds. The Birds. birds. Oh, the Birds, birds. okay. The Birds,
0: all right. I'm the only one here that wasn't alive when that song was out. Oh, go to the old joke. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it applies to you, Terry, not to me. That's
2: why I was insulted.
0: (laughs) But... He, he says, as he's interjecting now into, into our study and into uh, his reflections on life, there is a God, God is sovereign, and God's providence is real. And, uh, I mean, it's, just, it's a wonderful section of Scripture. It really is. But, now remember, Solomon is writing this at the end of his life. He's reflecting on his life. And uh, I, I somewhat outlined it this way in, in, in your notes, but I, this kind of gives us another way to picture it or to, if you will, graph it. So um, let, me, let me go through this and, and then we'll examine it. That should be 13, not 15. 3 through 13, in effect, is arguing this that God's providence and God's sovereignty are both real. God ruled, God's in control but also he's involved. And you see, you can can have a sovereign God, but you can have a God who's not involved. You can have a sovereign ruler who's not involved in the day-to-day intimate details of things. Neither is true of God. God is both sovereign and very involved. His providence is real, As, as, uh, as we put it. Now, these are true statements. But Solomon says, if that's true, then why is there injustice, oppression? Why should I work so hard? What are my motivations for working? And I'm finding it difficult to enjoy the fruit of my labor if God's sovereign and God's problem. Because as a matter of fact, I find I really don't have a lot of time to do this. And I find I have very bad motivations for working hard. And I see oppression of the weak everywhere. And I see injustice throughout the world. So if God's sovereign and God's providence is real, then why do these things characterize the world in which other?
1: Is that a question? Or that... <laughs> you
0: know, it's, it's rhetorical from Solomon's <laughs> oh, perspective. But you and I, now listen, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but man, I want to be very blunt. You'd better have an answer to this. Because the critics of the Bible and the agnostic and atheistic secular people of the world as well as I mean, Buddhism, when, when Buddha in the 6th century B.C. affirmed this and looked at this, he came up with a totally different answer than the Bible does. <coughs> and he charts a whole path which becomes known as Buddhism. So I'm saying, you better have an answer to this. Now, let, let's just, before we get into the text, let's just answer this. If God is sovereign, and God is providence, his involvement is providential involvement is real things don't just happen they're part of what he's doing then why are these things how would you answer these what's the answer to this we live in a fallen world the the earth is not the, the earth the earth is not the Lord's this is a fallen world that we're in Okay, I agree with, we live in a fallen world when you say the earth is not the Lord. Yeah, I'm not sure what I, I, you mean by I, I, that, because I'm not I mean, sure I would agree with that. But, but uh, you're, you're, let's just leave that second part out and <laughs> camp on the fallenness, okay? You live in a fallen world. What does that mean when you live in a fallen world? This world is is full of sin. Okay. Okay, that's right. This is a world that... Although God is sovereign and God's providence is real, the world doesn't recognize this. The world doesn't accept this. And in effect, to be blunt, the world is in rebellion against the sovereignty of God. The world does not want to live the way God has decreed things, ordered things, and his moral law that that he's made clear. And so in a very real sense, the answer to why, why are all these things, the answer is, The rebellion of the human race. Or, if you will, the presence of sin in this world. And then, as Joe correctly said, the result of that rebellion and sin is a fallen world. And God is in the business now, if you will, of recreating a new world. 2 Corinthians 3 says if any man be in Christ he is a new creation a new creature all old things have passed away behold uh, all things become new God is remaking his world and he is making it possible for us to be righteous and walk with him but according to his terms and his standards which of course is provided through the Lord Jesus Christ in his finished work but I'm, I I, in, a, in a way, it's a bunny trail. But in another way, it isn't, because Solomon doesn't Solomon doesn't come up with an answer right now. In chapter two, three and four, he does not come up with an answer yet. What he's doing is, if I believe this is true, but I'm really struggling with the injustice I see, the oppression I see, the inadequate answers to why people work hard and why they're motivated to work, and I can't enjoy the things that seeming I should be enjoying. If God is sovereign, it's real. And the person who does not walk with the Lord, even today in 2014, and may say, I believe there is a God, however they want to define God, these are the things that they struggle with. There is a man named Bart Ehrman, who is a graduate of Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College, who is now the leading critic in the United States of America of the Bible. He is a voluminous, a absolutely brilliant man. He is a professor of religion at Duke University. But what has happened to that man, and I don't know what's happened to him personally. I I can't explain that. But what happened, he looks at these things and he says, the God that I studied and the God that I said I wanted to walk with is not the God that I want to walk with. Because if he's really God, why is there so much injustice? why is there so much why is there so much oppression and it just goes on and so what he's done I heard him give I wouldn't call it his testimony but I heard him tell his story one time he said at my church I used to say the Apostles' Creed do you know what I mean by that the Apostles' Creed I used to say the Apostles' Creed and I found it more and more difficult to say each statement of the Apostles' Creed and he said when we would recite it in church there's certain statements I just wouldn't say He said, one Sunday morning, I got to the point where I couldn't say anything in the Apostles' Creed. At that point, this is his quote from him, I knew I was no longer a Christian. And he is a professor of religion at Duke and the University in North Carolina. And he is one of the leading critics of biblical Christianity in the United States today. And this, this is his tack. If there's so much injustice and evil in the world, there cannot be a God.
1: So would you <clears throat> would you say that he and, and Solomon are at the same position? This gentleman, you
0: reference. Yes, in, uh, in, 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 in in where Solomon is now, but Solomon reaches a totally yeah, different right, conclusion right, exactly. than Bart Ehrman does.
1: Yeah, but in this statement, he's yes. he's just reiterating what Solomon said.
0: In effect, that's right. And and what now, But but again, it's really important. Bart Ehrman reaches a different conclusion than Solomon reaches. Yeah, for sure. But that's right, uh, that's right. It is the existence of these, the existence of these things that cause Solomon to question, goodness, if God is sovereign and his providence is real, why are those things existing? Which is uh, really, uh, it's a, we have to have an answer for that. Uh, a book was just published last, well, I guess it's not two months ago, but um, it's called Truth Matters. It's a thin little book it's a summary of a much larger text that's coming out in a couple of months. And two of the men that wrote the book I studied under, but they're, they're answering Bart Ehrman. And my st- I'm going to ha- make this a required a reading in my course, one of my courses that I teach. But it's called Truth Matters, and what they're doing is they're answering Ehrman, which is, is valuable. Somebody has to answer him, and, and they are, because this guy is resonating with a lot of people because he came out of an evangelical... Uh, college and, and and graduate school, and then went on and got his doctor somewhere else, but so you know you for some reason that gains credibility. somebody that goes to uh, evangelical schools and then renounces it ah what's funny why he renounces it <laughs> he 's been on nPR probably a dozen times i 'm sorry he teaches he 's a professor of religious i think it 's professor of religious studies I think that 's his title. At
3: Duke. He's not in religion anymore,
0: why is still teaching? You'll have to ask the academic dean at Duke University that question. Mm-hmm. But Duke is not an evangelical school by any stretch. Right. I mean, they, they, they take a very, uh, very broad view of things. I don't know how to answer your question, Mark. But, uh, all right, now... It,
3: like those questions, are very hard to answer, too. I'm sorry? Like, the same like those questions, it's very hard to answer, as well.
0: They are hard to answer, but, I mean, as Joe correctly said, I mean, the, the, the place to begin answering the question is, this is the answer. The human race is in rebellion against God. And if the human race is in rebellion against God, why would you expect the human race to be manifesting justice? They're not going to be. Why would you expect to see fairness and equity instead of oppression? You're going to see oppression. And why would you expect to see people you know, asking the question, why do I work so hard with any other answer? Well, I'm working hard to get a lot of money and to become wealthy so I can live a good life, that kind of thing. Because if there is no God, or you are living as if there is no God, then that's probably what you're going to be doing. And so, and it's, this isn't to say that it doesn't create a lot of tension for us. And this is in all 66 books of the Bible. The problem of the human race is sin and rebellion against God. And in every one of those books, God has an answer to that. It starts in Genesis 3.15 that out of the seed of the woman is going to come one who will bruise, crush literally the head of the serpent. Who is that? Well, in Genesis 3.15, we don't know who it is. But as the Bible unfolds, who is it? It's Jesus. The answer to this question is Jesus. And, and I, I've used this quite a bit with people who are very critical of the Scripture. My God tells me this, that he loves humans so much who are in rebellion against him that he sends his son, who adds to his deity humanity, to die a substitutionary death. And to be resurrected is proof that he paid the penalty for sin. So how is God doing away with evil in his world? By becoming a victim of evil. Which is what the cross is. Jesus became a victim of evil to do away with evil. That's God's plan. And there's coming a day when he will absolutely eradicate all evil. And that's all wrapped around his return, as you know. And then the next question, well, then why is God taking so long? That's the next question that comes up. And the answer to that is in, in, in Peter's letters. God is delaying the return of his son to increase the population of heaven. That's why he's delayed. They are the answers. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going to accept it, but they are the answers that the Bible gives. And they're the answers that Solomon's going to end up with. Okay, now Mark, do You know, you
3: know um, in my perspective, my humble opinion, the answer for that question is, you know, that it is God's plan, not only the rebellion of human race. Because if we say that it is the rebellion of human race that's causing all of this stuff, this means that God is incapable or is weak to stop the injustice and the oppression and so forth. I think. It is the God's plan that's doing all of this, uh, whether we like it or not, and the real answer is Jesus Christ, because all of a sudden everything of those makes sense, even injustice. You can see Jesus dying on the cross, complete injustice. Right. But then all of a sudden it becomes, you know, a better answer. If you look at the oppression, you know, the oppression of the Christians, the oppression of the church, and the oppression of the good people, you know, the answer to Jesus and it has a better answer when Jesus I have to this is my
0: Well, I I wouldn't disagree with with, with that, uh, Mark. But um, and I think you're saying the same thing I'm saying, except in a little bit of a different way. What what the scriptures do? Thank you, Fred. What the scriptures do not permit us to do is blame God for that. The Bible is crystal clear. God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of sin, and God does not tempt. Literally, in James 1, 11, he's untemptable. But what, what God is what God is doing is God is saying, Okay, I told you, and this is what he tells Adam, the day that you eat, in other words, the day you violate my moral law is the day you will die. Stage one, you'll be separated from me. You'll no longer have fellowship with me. Stage two is you will die, in the sense that your physical life will end. So what God does is he then, if this is the right way to speak of God, God then hatches a plan to reconcile the lost human race to himself. But it has to be on his terms. He can't fudge it. He he has to be on his terms, which means how does, and this is the question the book of Romans answers, how does God make us righteous? And the answer to that is it's all wrapped around the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And as the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ Um, occurs and what you see then is his outpost on earth which is the church his outpost on earth manifests those things the greatest force for justice in the last 2000 years has been the church the greatest force liberating women from oppression has been Christianity it has not been Islam it has not been Hinduism it has not been Buddhism it has not been Confucianism All four of those have a horrendous ethic of women. But biblical Christianity teaches women are equal as image bearers of God, equal at the cross, and equal as joint heirs with Christ. Now there are role differences, but equality is, and Jesus championed that. The greatest liberating force for women in history has been Christianity. So Christianity is the outpost of heaven begins to answer these. Who has built more hospitals and medical clinics than any force in history? Biblical Christianity. That doesn't mean Hindus don't build hospitals. But in, I'm talking about going into a community where there is no medical care. Who does that? Krishna. You don't have Hindus going to foreign lands, building hospitals and schools and leading people to save it. That doesn't happen. anyway... I'm getting down a bunny trail, but in a way, I'm not. Well, I what, what, these are the things that when people <clears throat> come up to me and say, how do you answer these kind of questions? They're the answers. You, you've got to have an answer to this. If you say, well, I don't know, you're sending a message, you don't have very deep convictions about your faith, do you? You can't answer these tough questions. I'm going to look somewhere else. But if you said there is an answer. What I the first thing I say to somebody: Look, there's an answer to this. But if you expect me an answer it in the next fifteen seconds, that's not going to happen. Do you want to take something to go for coffee? Do you want to take something? To for there is an answer to this. Okay. Yeah, ah, you, you don't know. Okay, I told you you can't do it in fifteen seconds. Verse fifteen. Jim, what? Just, and I, I know you can't speak for the guy, but gentlemen, you were just
2: mentioning. I mean, when you listen to any days that go on between atheists or one of these guys on TV starts getting into fashion Christianity. That's one of the things I'll get into is all these things you just mentioned um, before up there. I mean, it seems like a pretty basic question because I've got to always go to. Mm -hmm. But the guy with his kind of training and background and walking that life out for so many years as a Christian, it just seems to me that I I often wonder if something might have happened in his own personal life that might have caused him. I mean, that seems like a basic thing you would ask way back in the early days. Of course, I mean, is that unfair? I mean, is that a.
0: Yeah, I I, I can't. In terms of his personal life and personal journey, I simply can't answer that. I do not. one of them
2: is most
3: likely, I feel anyway, higher education. That has got to be one of the most secular places you can imagine. I don't know if that's your experience. But it seems like that, you know, the brainiac types, university or something like that are going to try to outthink the Bible. And so
0: he's going to have that in my opinion going against him. Well, I think the the degree, and again, I don't know him personally, and I don't know anything about him personally, but I know where he did his his doctoral work. And he did his doctoral work in one of the most uh, critically uh, and antagonistically uh, places in attacking. Any kind of faith, for the as a matter of fact, Islam as well as Christianity. But, and that's that is very difficult. That's one of the things that I think the local church has to be very, very careful that they're doing, is especially in youth group ministry. You have to make sure that you, there's a component where you're helping prepare young adults for what they're going to face if they go off to college. A Steve Henderson study shows evangelical kids who go away to college, and it's not a Christian or faith based school. 80 of those evangelical kids who go away to school, by the end of the first semester, are no longer going to church. By the end of the second semester, they have serious questions. By the end of the second year, 50% of that 80% no longer call themselves Christians. That's, That's a stunning and frightening set of statistics. And so what that teaches me... And and you know we we talked about that a lot. I have not here but in other settings that tells me that the local church has got to see part of its mission in its youth youth group ministry to be preparing and equipping young people for what they're going to face or you're sending them to the wolves and unless their faith is really strong and they have the answers um, I mean that that is just kind of a given um, and I, I, I have four degrees two of them are from uh, excuse me, three of them are from very secular schools where the Christianity, only one of them is my seminary degree, uh, theology degree but I mean it is it's, it's, it's not neutral, it's not neutral yeah. it's antagonistic, <laughs> you know what I mean you think, well it's going to be neutral they're just going to let you think whatever you think that's not true for the most part it's not neutral it's antagonistic. If it were neutral, oh, okay, but it's not neutral. And the kids today, have they have to have answers to this. They have to be able to say, I know why there's injustice and oppression in this world. And I know there's an answer to it. And, I mean, that's the kind of thing. And they have to have an apologetic for the Bible. Because what Bart Ehrman, Bart Ehrman's favorite attack is, you can't trust that book. He's brilliant. He's a textual critic. He studied under Bruce Metzger, the leading textual critic in the United States. Now he's dead now, but he was a leading textual critic, and he's just applied all that and said, "Can't trust it." And The moment you say to somebody, "You can't trust the Bible," you you then have opened up an enormous It's just like Satan did with Eve in Genesis three. The moment the moment you find out they don't trust the Bible, you got them. When Satan asked Eve the question, "Did God say you can't eat from the trees of this garden?" Which is the wrong question. God didn't say it. That was she misquotes God three times. Three ways she misquotes him. Satan's conclusion is what? I've got her. And so he goes for the jugular. And that's what's happening to our young adults today. If they do not have an apologetic and a firm understanding of why that can be trusted and the answers to these questions, we're sending them to the wall.
1: Jim, as you mentioned, there's... Uh... You know, there's a need for youth groups to have that as part of their curriculum and also there's some uh, ministries that is designed it's one of the, to mm-hmm. give a world biblical mm-hmm. view and it's mm-hmm. one of many but there are other tools out there that Christianity has
0: That oh yeah I mean there, there, there are many 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 tools many ways in which you can do it but it's, it's not a good thing if we're not helping prepare them for this we have yet to get to a verse in the Bible. Can we? Can we do that now? All right. Now, if look at verse fourteen, um, uh, and uh, well, actually, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. For God is so work that men should fear Him. That which is has already is already, and that which has been already been. For God seeks what's passed by. Furthermore, now he's beginning his questions. I have seen under the sun that in the place of unjust, in the place of justice, excuse me, there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, there's wickedness. And so I said to myself, concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. One dies, so does so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath. And there's no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all come from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man extends upward, and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. I'm going to talk about verse 21 in a minute. And in your notes, I've tried to to, to uh, summarize some of these things. At the bottom of page um, 7, Solomon looks at his world and sees injustice. If God's providence and sovereignty are real, why is there injustice? He even notes that where there should be no injustice in the courts, place of judgment and justice, there's injustice. So verse 17, top of the next page. God Solution: God, because of his righteous, just character, will bring about justice in his time. If you look again at verse 17, for a time, for every matter, and every deed is there. Solomon is obviously concluding that God's justice is future. What is not clear is whether there is an eternity, whether this is an eternity on earth. The point, God's justice will triumph in his time. But here in verse 18, we see another purpose of injustice. It's didactic. It teaches humans what they really are. In their base actions and character, they behave as animals. This verse seems to focus on their behavior. As with animals, all humans die. So in that sense, humans have no advantage over animals. Both are transitory. Both come from dust. Both return to dust. Verse 21 is a very problematic verse in the Hebrew. It really is. But what he seems to be suggesting is that the primary difference between the animals and man is the human spirit, which is eternal. All right, let's work through this. Let's work through this again. Solomon is posing the first apparent contradiction of God's sovereignty and God's providence in justice. All right. Let's, let's stop there for just a minute. Solomon in verse, if Solomon in verse 17 is teaching that God's justice will eventually triumph, for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. If God's justice will eventually triumph, what is the importance of knowing that? For you and for me. Do you understand my question? It's a simple question.
3: Well, I mean, it gives you a lot of hope. I okay. Mean, to, you know, I think that, I mean, every one of us has had injustice in our lives at the ages that we're at. Sorry, it's an old, joke, old man joke. But, I mean, to actually think that if you really believe that, you can really get through a lot. Okay. And so when you, take, when you take the people that don't believe that... and that's why there's
0: so much suicide is Mm. people lose hope Mm -hmm.
3: they don't think there is any hope Mm. so they get really frustrated with it and think that Mm. there is no hope and there is no justice whatever that means it it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people
0: let's look at it at a whole bunch of levels let's look at it at the big global level are the Hitlers and Mussolinis and Joseph Stalins and Mao Zedong's of this world will they experience God's justice? Yes. In, some, in some ways you can say in time they already have I mean if you know anything about the last 18 months of Hitler's life I mean he was just a basket case and then you know what happened is he committed suicide so in a sense you could say the wheels of God's justice turned in Adolf Hitler's life and justice occurred but the horror of what he did you know the World War II and all that occurred as well as the Holocaust and so on but um, have there been monstrous leaders in the past who died just a natural death and lived a long time and per- absolutely had a rule characterized by pervasive injustice and oppression? Anybody come to mind? Muhammad. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't thinking of him, but uh, Muhammad, okay. Huh? Henry VIII. How about Stalin? Stalin died a natural death. Stalin lived a long time. He became the dictator of the Soviet Union in 1924. When did he die? 1953. That's a long time. Fidel Castro is a modern example. So what I'm saying, okay, Hitler, you can say, well, God dealt with him justly while he was still alive. Despite the horror of what he brought, Stalin, not any evidence of that particularly. So, from eternity's perspective, will Joseph Stalin be meted out justice by the living Holy God? The answer is yes. I bring that down now to to your personal. Dave was starting to briefly talk about that. I don't know if he had specific things in mind, but in our own lives. There, there is injustice. Things happen to us that are unfair. Um, things happen to us that don't, you know, that, well, this doesn't make any sense. Why, why is that person doing the same thing I did and I'm brought to task for it and he's not? What the Bible says and the Psalms particularly keeps saying, God is just. God's justice will be meted out. Trust him, Okay. How does Jesus apply that teaching in Matthew chapter 6? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. He's actually quoting an Old Testament passage, but Paul says exactly the same thing in Romans 12. So our task, our goal, our motivation is not vengeance and bitterness. It's trusting God to take care of this. Does that mean we don't work for justice? No, it doesn't mean that. Does that mean we do not not become an advocate for justice? No, it doesn't mean that. But sometimes we have to assume what Solomon is assuming here. God's timing will take care of it. Sometimes you'll see it in human history. Sometimes we may not see it till the great white throne. But God's we, this isn't an original statement of mine. God's wheels of justice are always turning. Sometimes, very slowly, they are turning.
1: Can the, I ask you a question yes, on please. 14? Uh, it says, for God has so worked that men, and that I think that means, doesn't it, all mankind should fear him? And, and you think of some of that,
0: the... Yes that is God's ultimate intent. Mm-hmm.
1: And so how do you explain like Solomon or not Solomon, but Stalin and uh, you know some of the other Russian leaders and
0: or Mao Zedong, China yeah, or you whatever know. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, again, the only way they, uh, Fred, the only way this can make sense. It's from the perspective of eternity. Because fear um, fear has two meanings to it in the Hebrew there. It has two meanings. It has a cowering in fear you know, because of the greatness and power of God, or it, it's a worship word. It's a response of worship worshipful reverence and awe of God. So, I mean, you were right. It's what, you know, Paul says this in Philippians 2, that there's coming a time in history when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords. Okay? Now, that hasn't happened yet, because not everybody's confessing that. When will that happen? When he returns and sets up his kingdom? You see what I'm saying? And so, there will be those who will kowtow, if I can put it that way, kowtow in fear of him because he is a majestic king of kings and lord of lords and those he will judge and those who will reverentially, worshipfully love and fear him. God's intent is that that occurs, but some will fear him out uh, out of, you know, I've, I've thought about this a number of times, um, Now, I mean, I'm choosing him because everybody knows who I'm talking about. I could choose many people. But when, when, those, when those special ops guys uh, shot and killed Osama bin Laden, the second he died, what did he realize? Everything he stood for and everything he believed was wrong. You follow what I mean? I mean, that's a really crass way to put it, but that's exactly right. I mean, that, the moment, and I, I thought of Mohammed, you know, we, there's always a mystery and all surrounds some of the stuff about him because of the sanitized stories of, of Muhammad. But whatever the certain, the moment he died, he realized he was wrong. The moment Siddhartha Buddha died, he realized he was wrong. You, see, I know. Do you say that. What, what are you thinking that, that they're thinking
3: at that very moment?
0: Well, David, one love, I don't I don't know. I'm I'm speculating based to some extent on the one um, passage of scripture I believe it's in Luke, where Lazarus and the rich man, you know, and Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. It's God, and Lazarus, what you know, they can see across, across this divide or whatever. Lazarus is is, is, is being judged. He's suffering from hell. And remember what he says: "Go back and tell my brothers." <laughs> To believe, but rather and tell them everything we said was wrong. And, and what does Jesus say? They have Moses, they have the law, they have enough revelation to respond to. Yeah. That, in other words, God has sent enough revelation for them to respond to. And Romans 1 through 3 tells us all the categories of revelation that humans should respond to. So that the end, the end result of that is that at the great white throne, no one is ever going to stand before God and say, hey, you never let me know you exist. You never gave me any account. You never gave me your moral law, and God's going to say, oh, yeah. So uh, it seems to me, Dave, that, you know, if an unbeliever dies, they do not go to be with the Lord. They go to Hades. And that very second, they realize, everything I believe, everything I stood for, was wrong. That would be, I don't know how, I mean, I'm just speaking as a human being in a sense. That would be an absolutely overwhelming thought. And there's absolutely no hope that you can change it. Because what the scriptures teach us is Osama bin Laden, and I can't tell you when, but Osama bin Laden would have had many opportunities to respond to the truth. And he rejected it whatever that might mean whether it's conscience or the God's creative work or whether it's a moral walk God, he rejected he refused to
3: accept it I always think about the guys that find the planes into the towers how much conviction they have that they are doing the right thing in their own mind and they are liberating themselves and heaven is waiting right in front of that building when the plane mm-hmm. is going and as soon as they hit they got hit with the truth right away that's, that's a good comment Mark. A, I think about same thing because it's is seconds, or even parts of seconds, between the false convictions and the truth.
0: That's right. What are
2: the yeah.
0: I mean, or the virgins? Yeah.
3: Or the liberation or heaven, you know, and the mindset of those terrorists or jihadists. I want to call them jihadists, not terrorists. Is their, their mind, they're going to be deceived in heaven with angels cheering them in and all that kind of stuff. And obviously, it was not the scene that they expected whatsoever.
0: Mm. I mean, that's uh, that's exactly right. What do you think about the comment he's making in verse 18? That humans are just like beasts. What's he saying there?
2: They're acting out of animalistic behavior. Okay. Their base instinct.
0: Okay. I think that's exactly what he's saying. Because, again, back to the, the fundamental answer, because of the rebellion and sin of the human race, you chart, again, I, I love that. It's a horrible section, but you, I love that in Romans 1.18 and following, the downward spiral. And as that downward spiral continues downward, what you see are the base instincts and behavior of humanity. That's, they now are capable of doing absolutely horrific things. And that's a good way to put it, the animalistic tendency. In, 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 in effect, everything that a human being does is, in a, sen- in a sense, animalistic. It's selfish, it's self-centered, it's self-indulgent. An animal is one of the most selfish things you can see. I mean, uh, have you ever really, really, really watched a squirrel? <laughs> well, you don't like squirrels. I then. detest squirrels. They're, they're, just a, they're, a, they're a rat with a bushy tail because they are a rodent. But I said, I mean, and they, they really are. They're very destructive. Said, oh, my goodness. That's the way humans are. But Solomon then says, but the main difference, the main difference, and as a matter of fact, the only difference, in verse 21 some of your translations may have a little bit they may have spirit but breath of a man because the word breath is actually spirit it's that immaterial part there is no evidence that an animal has a soul but the Bible declares very 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 clearly that humans do that's the difference that's the difference can I
1: ask you another question I'm sorry absolutely popping up, God has surely tested them, that's humanity that's men, women Uh, in order order for them to see that they are beasts is that for their benefit or for how does this test benefit them that they declare themselves to either turn to God or church to turn away from God, how how do you see that?
0: Uh... Yeah, um, yeah, I think for it's for themselves to to understand that apart apart from God, they are nothing more than beasts that animalistic, selfish, self centered tendency. Is
1: that so? They would turn back. Yeah, to...
0: I think that. Yeah, yeah. With with the consequence of that being, hopefully, to to uh, to turn into God. Now, you know that that doesn't doesn't always happen, but that would be the intent. I mean, do you, do you, I I think that's a very powerful analogy because don't you see that today? I mean, you, you, the animalistic tendencies of human beings without Christ.
2: Stabbing
0: the yeah I mean it's just you just you really um, you can see the evidence of that and it's um, well anyway I don't think we need to talk about that but you know I, I've read about some of the over the, over the history of humanity but you know, especially you now more recently just the absolutely unimaginable things human beings can do you know it's it's like the SS during the Holocaust. Uh, you know, they, there's, there's numerous, numerous, numerous accounts of this. You know, working at Auschwitz was just an eight you know, eight to five job. They'd be turning on the gaff ovens and hoarding the Jews in, and they'd go home at night, play with their kids and have dinner. You know, How could you do that? But that's what they did. They're countless, countless. That's why when they liberated those camps... You've read about this. They forced the communities that lived around there to walk through the camps. In effect, saying what you knew was going on, this is what you were doing. This is what you tolerated. This is what you countenance. There's a, now, that's an extreme, but that's an example of humans acting like beasts. This is when
3: somebody looks at the, the other as of a nest of a human being. Exactly you see like, you know, it's like you are hurting a exactly. group of gods or whatever, you
2: know.
0: Exactly.
2: And the thing was that I've read before is that this is not something you just walk out the door and start doing one day. That was something that slowly took time for years leading up to that to get, to get people to operate in that kind of behavior, dehumanizing the Jewish people mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. I mean, a lot of times I think it's just like, you know, you walk out the door and you say, okay, you put the uniform and start... It seems to me that that makes... Clicked for me, but it took time for
0: them to I mean, give themselves so desensitized. Mm-hmm. So what?
2: Well, desensitized. And this is the same thing happening right now in
3: Iraq with this group of people like They are doing the same oh, thing. They go and kill kids and women and people. And just, if, you let, if you look at the other person as a lesser human being and you are better, you are different, and he does not deserve the life that you have, then you can do the person whatever you want. It's a, it's a belief.
0: Mm-hmm. Here is a photograph of my grandson. He's three months old. He's 11 centimeters long. And this is, you know, have you seen his high-def ultrasound? This is, this is my, my grandson. Now, the reason I'm showing you this is in the United States of America since 1973, we have aborted 54 million children like this. Because you said they are not human beings. Desensitized. Because, as Mark correctly said, we reached the conclusion, this is not a human being of worth and value. What do we call it? Well, uh, we call it fetus, compostel. He's he's three months old, And, and this one's even clearer. I can see his eyes, I can see his head, I can see his chin, I can see his arms, I can see his legs. He's three months old. He's 11 centimeters long. Do you want to pass it? No. Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> That's my grandson. But
0: it's just, I say that because to use the word desensitized, our culture, our high-tech civilization has reached a conclusion that is not a life. It's not protected by anyone or anything. It's a life. It's not a life. So it totally, its survival and its existence is dependent on the decision of the mother or whoever makes those decisions. Okay, I, I need this. I'm using that as an example because it does fit with the word desensitized. Wow. What's God's view of, of that little boy?
3: His creation, his human being.
0: It's of worth, it's value. My grandson bears his image. You know, now, he's telling you, what's 11 centimeters? It's about that long or something. I think it's about 11 centimeters. Can you imagine that?
3: But from God's yeah two, you know? yeah.
0: But from God's perspective, so in Christ, in Christ, because I think that's a terrible injustice—fifty-four million babies killed. But in Christ, you start to see. I'm gonna. I'm now starting to repackage my mind and thinking to see life the way God sees life. Life is of infinite value and worth to Him. Life bears His image. It matters how I treat life, regardless of. In a womb, or 90-year-old in a bed, or whatever.
2: See what changed? I don't remember the numbers from AAA. Twelve hundred. But when they see the pictures before, yeah, that, that has a huge
0: absolutely impact. Yeah, absolutely. My,
1: my wife works there, and uh, Jim Beck is the president of that organization. And uh, and he and my wife will come home, and it just impacts her every time she, absolutely, and she will make a statement a woman came in with just sort of a, either a cavalier attitude or a dedicated uh, desire to have this child aborted and then when they actually saw the picture it impacted them and their hearts just changed and, and the most recent one had twins mm. and and she just, she was just at one extreme going in, and she was just totally at the other extreme coming out. And she said, during that time, she said, I cannot abort my children. Yep. My
3: mm. truth, Joe, we get onto the abortion ongoing once a month on Saturday, Friday, and Saturday
0: and they're so cavalier and... It's a good word. It's
1: a good word.
0: You know. It's just... it's... it's, it's You know, I've, uh, I've written a little bit on this too, but what is historically really, really important was in 1970s, I mean in understanding this, in the 1970s it was incredibly shrewd, shifted the focus from the rights of the baby to the rights of the mother and when they redefine the issue and then used you know words oh, you, you're familiar with all these but word, use words like choice and so on and, and freedom and rights which to Americans is they're precious words and you redefine them and reapply them to a particular situation. Uh, in this case, to, they, it was an incredible, an absolutely incredible shift in terms of law. It, it's one of the most monumental shifts that has occurred in the case law in the United States of America, to shift the focus from the rights of the child to the rights of the mother. But, and the result of that, then, this, this, this child has absolutely no rights until it exits the womb. That, then it has rights. Then it's protected by the Constitution. But before that, it's not. Now, that's, a, that's an incredible shift, but it was so successful. And if you notice, the right to die, euthanasia, doctor-assisted suicide, whatever, they did exactly the same thing. When they shifted the language from the focus on, you're you're taking somebody's life, you're ending their life. No, 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 it's the right to die with dignity. Doctor-assisted suicide is a human right. And you need to protect that human right. You win the debate. I mean, you've gotten about 80% of the debate already won. And I, I don't know how you guys think about this issue, but in, in the 19— they didn't do this in the 70s, they did this in the 80s. In the 1980s, the gay movement, lesbian gay movement, did exactly the same thing. They shifted the focus to the right. And they used that phrase that was in Roe v. Wade, the right of privacy, and applied it to sexuality. And the right of privacy, government has no role in my bedroom. And so they cannot define what is right or wrong law, in terms of law, not in terms of ethics, but in terms of law when it comes to human sexuality. And so today the the boundaries of human sexuality are just so broad, aren't they? There's there's hardly any limits except still rape and pedophilia. Although that's being tested by a group called the National Man-Boy Love Association, which is saying that if it's consensual... It can is' unbelievable logic but if it's consensual it can actually be good for the child which is such distorted and twisted logic but um, you, 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 I'm sure you've seen this the next the next horizon of sexual issues in the United States is polygamy oh, it no. is really Absolutely. really really being pushed Absolutely. because the logic is if there is if there is no constitutional, statements about sexuality and marriage when it comes to gender so same sex then why can't I have more than one spouse so that's honestly there's a, there's a huge amount of money being poured into that right now by a certain a small number of groups but next ten years we'll see you spoke of
2: the gay but I think one well, of the other things that's very troubling is how many Christians have bought into the, been born this way that's the new thing that's well, sure. You didn't sure. hear that more than 10 years ago. Yeah. People are born this way. Well, once you hear that, you can effectively try to disarm somebody. How you can argue with him? He has no choice. He's born with that. That's been
0: the few Let's look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, and then we'll be done. This is the second test, the second seeming contradiction, oppression. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead, who were already dead, more than the living, who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity done under the sun my goodness what a cluster of verses of despair in the notes i wrote this here solomon laments the desperate condition of the oppressed Their situation is seemingly hopeless there's no one to comfort them to take up the cause or to defend them and did you notice he doesn't hasn't used this since chapter two he uses the phrase under the sun What does that tell us? Apart from God, intervening and becoming the advocate of the oppressed, there is no hope. Isn't it an extraordinary statement in verse 3? In fact, it would have been better if you're never born. That's how bad things are. Now, in a sense, he doesn't mean that because of what he says later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, if, if there isn't an advocate who can stand for the oppressed, it is seemingly hopeless, under the sun. Does God take the side of the oppressed? Yes, he does. You know, one of the, one of the really, really intriguing things to study sometime is the issue of chattel slavery in the United States. And it it is really it's it's a conundrum, because you have you have a whole cluster of states, and they're all in the south, of course, who are defending the institution of slavery, oppressing and enslaving human beings. And what are they using to justify it? The Bible. And then you have another group, and this takes a little more time. We have another group, all of them associated with the northern states, that say slavery is a moral evil based on what? The Bible. The Bible. <laughs> So you have both sides appealing to the same authority, which is really interesting. And as you know, it's one of my favorite subjects to study, but it is Abraham Lincoln who rises above both. And he reaches the conclusion, and he makes this clear in the second inaugural address, that the Civil War was God's judgment on America for slavery. And Lincoln, halfway through the war, as you know, it's his Emancipation Proclamation, made the decision. This war is not only about preserving the Union. This war is about doing away with the moral evil of slavery. And in, in the second, it's, one of the, it's the greatest inaugural address ever given by a president. If you've never read it, Google it and read it. It's, it's not very long, but the second inaugural address, he says, you know, I've reached, I'm I've reached the conclusion that God is not either for the North or the South. Because when Lincoln gave the second inaugural address, the war was still going on. God is not for the south or for the north because they both read the same Bible. They both pray to the same God. We are God's instruments to effect His will and purposes. And it has become clear to me that one of His wills and purposes is to end slavery in the United States. Which is, you know, can you imagine a president talking like that today? You know, you just you you wouldn't one you wouldn't expect that. Until you wouldn't expect them to speak with that kind of authority from the Word of God, but that's what he did. And then the amazing thing about the end is you would think that Lincoln would then say in, in March of 1865, the triumph of the North. It was only a matter of days until uh, Lee was defeated, but um, he doesn't. He sends a message of forgiveness and grace and compassion must characterize the North. Malice toward none, remember those phrases? It's just an amazing, he was an amazing president. But that's beyond where we are now.
2: To have leaders
0: like that today. You know, I've all well, oh my goodness, I better quit. I've often said that. God, in his incredible grace, those early leaders of our country, they're just, they, some of them are like, you know, Washington's and Lincoln's. I mean, they're, just, they're amazing individuals. And that was God's grace. But, Well, men, um, next week, as you know from, I think Fred sent the email out, uh, Peggy and I are going back to see our aging parent. My dad's 90, Peggy's mom is 91, my mom's 87, and um, also my brother-in-law, who's dying of a very rare disease. So we want to spend about five, six days with them. So next week, the 2nd of July, we won't be here, but you'll be celebrating the 4th anyway. But we won't have class next week, but then, uh, what would that be, the 9th? So be two weeks from today, we, we will resume our class. Is that okay? I mean, if it isn't okay, that's what we're doing. But I just, we, we really need, to, we, we've been planning, we need to go back and spend a few days with our folks. Father, we're grateful for um, the book of Ecclesiastes. It, it really challenges us. It challenges us to think about things that are uncomfortable sometimes, and certainly some of the um, provocative ways Solomon puts some of this. It just challenges us and drives us back to you, drives us back to you, a God who is sovereign and your providence is real, a God who is just. And you will deal with all humans justly, whether it's still alive or at the great white throne. And we have to trust you with that. And even oppression of the weak and exploitation of people as horrible as that is, I think of what Boko Haram has done with those young girls they've kidnapped in Nigeria, hundreds of them. Lord, that's oppression of the weak. God, deal justly with that group. That is absolutely horrible what they've done. But we're almost helpless. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to deal with it. And so in some sense, here in the United States, we have to trust you that you will deal justly with what they've done to those young girls. And we could go on and on and on. What Solomon says as he drives us back, if God is just, and he is, then he will deal with this horrible oppression of helpless, weak human beings, like these young girls, for example. So Lord, there's so much that we see in evidence of the fallenness of the human race, the rebellion, but it drives us to that conclusion which is all through the Bible, that the only solution is Jesus. And so we pray that we can represent you well, represent you to men and women who need to see and hear uh, the message of Christ. And it's just to live our lives as well in a way that is almost like a magnet that draws people, that you can use through your spirit to awaken people to the truth of who Christ is and that he truly is the solution to the human condition. We trust you with these things. Bless these men and all the different areas of responsibilities that they have those who are not with us today as well, and all of the situations that we find ourselves in as we try to pray each week, help us to represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. I will see you in two weeks.